The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record. And we're live. It is Friday. March 11th, 2022, 5.03 p.m. Mike Pesca is joining us live from a Brooklyn speech therapist office. He has gone back to school. He has gotten numerous degrees in speech therapy since you last listened to the gist. And he has opened a, a, a speech therapist's office. That would have been a more productive use of your time than the shit you went through in the intervening (laughs) time off of the gist. Well, we have to point out it's a Brooklyn speech therapist office. So people come in saying talk and we have to tell them, no, it's talk. (laughs) No, no, it's not. It's not forget about it. Oh, no, we have so we have so much work to do. And in a different borough of New York. No, the same one. I thought it was in Queens. Oh, yes. Yes, no. it is in Queens. I don't, you know, when you interrupt me and correct me, Kate, <laughs> you got to be right. No, not it, anymore. I don't. <laughs> in the borough of New York City, the faculty of St. John's Law School has voted tenure to Kate Klonick, uh, which means that we can now have Kate unshackled, Kate unplugged, uh, the, the, the un censored Kate Klonick, who's been holding back. She can stop holding back all the shit that she has not done on this show because she has been afraid of her tenure vote. Um, And so I just want to say congratulations to Kate. Uh, Congratulations to the faculty of St. John's because there, there are ways to screw up a decision like that. Um, like we can talk about a few of them. There are a number of ways to do it. Um, it's like the trolley problem. Um, you know, you can send the trolley the wrong way or the right way. So it's good that they got this one right. Um, and also, uh, 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 I expect Kate now on command whenever somebody demands it of her to do something outrageous that would, uh, you know, she would never have done, uh, but while her tenure vote was pending. So, Kate? Oh, I was gonna cut my hair. Um, But no, I'm not gonna, I can't find scissors like at my desk, so I'm not gonna do that. (laughs) So, Um, tenure doesn't make her more organized. You know, I know it. (laughs) Um, actually, I really have bad news for everyone on that front. I like went down to teach on the day that I got tenure and like forgot my, my PowerPoint slides, forgot my, left my lecture notes on the printer and forgot my glasses at home. So I couldn't see anyone. I couldn't, I didn't have like anything. It was really terrible, but no, thank you. Thank you. It's not, it's like not that huge a deal and it's, but it's a nice relief and, um, 
I think, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm like happy. It's really sweet to have everyone's thanks and being All excited. of which is one way of saying that we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are also no longer allowed to fire Kate. Um, so, um, <laughs> well, you know, St. John's- The bar for cause has risen at least. Yeah, St. John's now can't have fun and can't get rid of Kate Klonick. We yeah. are allowed to have Mike Pesca, despite <laughs> numerous people's attempts to get rid of him. Yeah. Um, hello, Mike Pesca, and I want to start today with an incredible monologue that you did the other day in the spiel that I uh, There have been many good ones. That I announced wow, on the thanks. show was the smartest thing that's been said about cancel culture that's not by John Rausch. And I might have left out the that's not by John Rausch had John Rausch not been on the show at the time. Uh, I I thought it was prudent. I, and it's up there with Rauschian uh, wisdom on cancel culture. Um, uh, about the UVA op-ed. And I want to mm -hmm. start with uh, um, uh, the question that you go through in the show of uh, what we should use as a phrase instead of cancel culture. I think it's important because in order to think about a problem, you have to correctly name it. And I don't think that the phrase has necessarily always been wielded by people with ill intent. It's people with great intent who really just want to make society better and are wondering, is there this thing called cancel culture? Just by very dint of the name, it seems like we're asking to weigh in, are these people who have said to have been canceled, are they gone? Are they shunned? Have they been put in the cornfield? Does the scarlet letter drive them from town? So I hear phrases like, well, you know, Louis C.K. wasn't canceled. The guy is still selling out Madison Square Garden. Or, you know, she wasn't canceled. She has a substack. He wasn't canceled. He still has some vestige of the uh, of the status or show or income that he once had. And I understand why talking about canceling, it seems so total and so final. And I understand why it could lead us to think about it poorly. So the number one thing, if I could have any contribution to this conversation, it's to rethink what we think and how we define cancel culture. And I define it like this canceling cancel culture is the threat of or move to punish an argument with which the person doing the canceling disagrees so it's meeting arguments with punishment or the threat of punishment i i will admit that maybe doesn't cover all cancellations there is the does the punishment fit the crime type cancellation but in those ca cases i was thinking about you could think about the apology being the argument and then people calling for cancellation often ignore the uh, the apology. So that's step one. What is cancellation? Maybe there are some fringe cases that do it doesn't fall into, but let's think about the idea of you hear an argument and you rebut it with a punishment. So I'll stop there and what do you think of that so far? I totally agree with it, but it's never going to supplant the phrase cancel culture if we don't give it a name preferably with an alliterative uh, quality, right? I, I, I mean, and you stumble over this, I think intentionally in the piece, uh, you say cancel culture a few times and each time you say, by which I mean punishing an argument, uh, not cancel culture, punishing an argument uh, uh, or meeting an argument with punishment. 
Um, and so my question is, um, does it have legs without a name or, or is it just going to be a refinement of the, the meaning of the word cancel culture? Can I intervene really quickly, which is just to make a short observation about what I think it is that you're talking about, just when you were giving that example. I think you're talking about shaming. I mean, it is normative. It is normative. It's norm enforcement. Um, I heard you were, I was just listening to you and you were talking about how, um, oh, who was on your show? You were talking to someone about how the like taboo was like a way of enforcing norms and like taboos are ways of enforcing norms, but like shaming people is like this new thing. And I think that like your description of like, he's still selling out Madison Square Garden. He's not canceled means that like, it seems to me and tell me if I'm wrong, that your qualm with cancel culture is that it sounds completely outcome based when it's actually about the the errors in the process that you have a problem with. Is that possibly correct? Uh, that's part of my qualms, but I do feel that except in rare, rare, rare cases, what the uh, reaction to an argument should be, shouldn't be called for a punishment. And the reason that shaming is insufficient, there's often a shaming part of it, but how do we enforce the shame? Usually it's by stripping a person of position or salary or status. Status does get into shaming. So in this case, um, I was thinking about uh, Lieberman, the Columbia professor who made a statement about a, uh, a model, a Sudanese model who her fans call her, I think they call her queen of the dark. I don't want to get this uh, wrong, but she has, she, she has dark skin. And sometimes with filters, that's emphasized. And he used the phrase, you know about this, right? He used the phrase, whether she is a beauty or a freak of nature, we can all agree that, you know, she has some great, some great attributes, abuse aesthetically. It is not not just not wise, it is insulting to call a human being an African-American human being, she might be an African-African human being, a freak of nature. And so the question is, what does the guy do about this who used this infelicitous phrase or very offensive phrase? And the answer is he apologized up and down, right? So the canceling to me is the calls that worked to, I don't know if it's permanent, to strip him of his title at Columbia to punish him for saying this, no matter what his apologies were and out of proportion to his offense. Uh, th therefore, I don't think it's just that, you know, what, what you were saying, like the, maybe the Louis C.K. model isn't the best. The, the totemic person who's canceled that I always go to is Colin Kaepernick. And it's, I think, a useful argument, especially to people say things like cancel culture are, isn't true. They all agree that Colin Kaepernick was canceled. Okay, well, what happened? punishment he was met with punishment not being able to play for an nfl team by an act of speech and that goes on all the time just you know sometimes from left to right and sometimes from right to left okay so the second part of your argument which is the part that i think is the most challenging and i want to play with a little bit okay is this argument that nobody outside the progressive left doubts the existence of cancel culture, that basically it's only the people that if you look at the group of people who deny the deny the problem, 
they are all people who are not actually at risk of cancellation themselves. That does seem to be the dynamic. And I think it's important to define what we mean by the problem. You will find people outside the progressive left who disagree with the premise, cancel culture is real and it imperils society and it is driving us towards a path of totalitarianism, the, you know, and the portions and the implications can be overstated. So plenty of people outside the progressive left, I think, disagree with some overstatement of the premise. But if the premise is um, a modest premise, which is that there is a trend and a strain of uh, discourse that seeks to greet arguments with punishment. And then I think you could also layer on top of this. And this is to some degree pernicious. I've not met, I've not heard of anyone who is outside the progress, the sphere of progressive ideology who has rebuttals to that, who says, no, it isn't true, or that's all for the good. I mean, hasn't of, it always yeah. been the case, though? What? What's the like they, I mean, there's oh, I mean, in that sense, there's always been cancel culture. Like there, like people are always have some type of pun. Like maybe it's more, but this is actually I have a theory about why that might be. But like why or why we perceive it to be more at the moment. Um, but uh, isn't it always been the case that people have to suffer repercussions for things that they say? That are well, not that are met with punishment. Yes, but it's you know also always been the case that it, it, let's name any other societal ills that we try to eradicate, right? Sure, sure. Men, men get paid more than women and all that. So the, uh, the, the, the there was a part of my argument that says everyone who uh, doubts the existence of cancel culture or pushes against it says one of three arguments. One, it's not true. There is no. There's simply no such thing as cancel culture. Two, it is true, but it's good, which is the argument that these are proper consequences that allow speakers who are formerly marginalized to have their say. And the third part is the it was always ever thus argument. And yeah, there has always been examples for, for sure. There has always been examples of illiberalism and punishing apostasy and so forth. And I don't know if I could put my finger on the golden time, but there was certainly more of an ideal that that sort of thing is not the proper way to go about arguing. So when you have professors, like I was just reading about this, you know, this professor in San Diego is 63, Latino guy, teaches, is an expert on discrimination, teaches a course. The course includes a slide that have words that are used as slurs. But I don't think I was, it was hard to get clarity on what those words were, but I don't think they were the big words. Let's just put it that way. And he's been reassigned from teaching those classes because kids in the class were offended and wanted to extract punishments. Yeah, for much of our history, someone who is saying things that were offensive to mainstream sensibilities wouldn't be allowed to say them. And then, you know, John Dewey and others formed the uh, academic society. And then there was more of a robust feeling about the merits of uh, free speech and academic freedom. And I do sense that somewhere in between the 60s and 2011, it was just a much better time for if there are competing virtues and one virtue is um, the person's got to be able to say what they want to say. And the other virtue is the person should pay the price for offense. Uh, it, there was a the pendulum is swung is what I'm saying. I don't know totally, but to an extent that I notice and I think is real. So here's my my question about this this point that if if everybody noticing this as a problem 
does not include, if everybody denying that this is a problem falls into the camp of people who have never expressed a view that, or who don't express views that put them at risk of this. Um, and you, you cite uh, in the monologue, you cite an example of somebody who's a sort of hardliner on this, this problem does not exist. And then you kind of gently make fun of how conventionally uncancelable his substantive views on matters are. And my question is, do those people's views of whether the problem is real count? Yeah, because um, it seems to me if you only survey the people who've suffered cancellation, it's a huge problem, right? Barry Weiss is making an entire career out of out of the problem. Um, if you only survey people who were at no risk of cancellation, um, the problem is non-existent. I don't take either of those groups of people all that seriously, like the the, the Milo Yiannopoulos's, right? The <laughs> professional cancelees um, who do really offensive things. And then they're shocked that we don't want them at our, our dinner parties, right? But also the people who never express a controversial view in their lives among, in their, in the communities in which they operate. And then, want to claim that there's no problem because people like them feel no pressure. Um, I guess my question is, who is the community of people whose views about this you actually care about? Right. So first of all, while I did say I do find that no one who is of the uh, persuasion that it's entirely a moral panic, so that's the that's the counter argument. There is no cancel. I, I laid out the three arguments that they use specifically, and there are sub arguments. But the people who think that cancel culture either isn't a problem or doesn't exist will say it's simply a moral panic. And I do find that everyone that I know of that I have seen engage with that publicly is well within the bounds of uh, progressive ideology that would be welcome on a campus. There, there are exceptions, and I'm sure, you know, Roxane Gay wrote a book called Bad Feminist, right, where she was essentially saying that she's an imperfect feminist, so she could point to those that subset of her I wrote ideas. that book too, you know, and, and nobody <laughs> yeah, but, bought it when I wrote it. That it was, when I said the, it. Cover, the cover wasn't as shocking, right? It wasn't, <laughs> it, it didn't have that frisson of danger. But so what I'm saying is maybe the people that I uh, put in this group, the cancellations of moral panic, maybe they would all say, oh, I stray from progressive orthodoxy in one or two ways. But generally, I've never heard it. And generally, they're um, engaged in arguing for progressive ideas that if cancel culture were to exist, their ideas would actually just, you know, fl not flourish, but have an advantage because the opposing ideas would somehow be suppressed. So first, okay, so that's first of all. Second of all, the I don't only listen to the people who are the victims of it. I listen to a broad range of people who I think some, many have very progressive ideologies, except they admit, say, on this point that there seems to be something like cancel culture. I go to the original Harper's letter and, you know, it was it was signed probably by a couple of people who regret it now, but it was signed by Noam Chomsky. 
you know, I don't think his views would get uh, would get him ousted from the university. He has tenure. He can't do it. Yeah, when I tried to get him canceled when I was an undergraduate, I never imagined <laughs> that he and I would be on a letter together. Not I that I was on a Harper's letter, but yeah. a different letter. You know letter. who won that letter was Dwayne. But anyway. Dwayne, yeah. I wonder, you know, I, I, I've never, I don't know that I've, you guys could ask him what he thinks about that. I think it's hard. It's, it is hard to be. On he was letter. angry. I can tell you. He was that angry he was... at the reaction to it. And he thought it was bullshit. And he was also like, I just, I just saw it's just a stupid fucking letter. Like what, a, what, yeah, what, 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 um, right. like what is going, like, he just was like, this is like in the hierarchy of like it, of like, it's like the most, and like, it's just so empty. Like, it's like not, like who cares yeah and it's it like agreeing to him it was just like agreeing with some basic principles or mission statement of pan america let's that say. was literally so, it yeah yeah exactly yeah. right and then there and then it's like maybe he didn't know at the time that jk rowling had this stick <laughs> on her among yeah. certain or was even going to sign the letter i get that but i do like i read michelle goldberg's uh columns and she's not like a hundred percent she's not as progressive if you want to call it that as maybe bernie sanders right she's more like elizabeth warren than bernie sanders but she recognized she signed a letter and she recognizes that the phenomenon's going on phenomenon's going on so yeah she's someone i listen to i listen to someone some people who survey this fairly and the proof of their fairness isn't that they agree with me this guy i cited michael um what's it? michael hobbs is if he, I have read, I've seen a video he did and I read a long substack he did. And if that substack um, had had weight and held water up and down, I'd be like, gotta admit it. These are great examples of him pointing out people who were so-called canceled and there weren't. And there were people in that um, long substack post that he did that are considered canceled, but it is more complicated. But then there are also people who just really were punished for having what should be an acceptable idea and mostly he ignored the strong cases but he gave inaccurate information about how we should interpret the uh the troubling cases and if he didn't do that if his arguments were sound i really do think that i'd say oh yeah good good job you know I'm always open to good debunking it's just the bad debunking and at this point i think the cancel culture is a moral panic crowd is something close to vaccine deniers or something close to global warming deniers. Um, if you think these things don't happen and there's so much evidence of it, I don't think you're willing to willing to uh, take in evidence and credit it as evidence. So I don't know if you remember this, Ben, this was episode was like a long time ago and this is related to the UVA op-ed and I kind of want to know how you color, how this colors in your, your scenario, Mike. Um, Quinta was on and she was talking about self-censorship. Quinta doesn't, yeah, Quinta doesn't believe in cancel culture. Yeah, she does not believe in this at all. And she was like, don't we always self-censor? Don't we always think that this is something that's like, aren't we always self-censoring? And I actually thought that that was an interesting reframing because of course, yes, we obviously always do. Um, there is like, we are not just the one, except for maybe me who just like runs her mouth and then her brain catches up 10 minutes later. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I don't think you self-censor, KK. I do not self-censor a ton. I will be totally it's, honest. It's not, it's not for like prudential reasons. It's just because it's you, just uh, not how my brain works. It's actually <laughs> literally not how my brain works. Like there is no moment that I have to stop and think about things. I just start talking. And that has always been up. As my dad said, stop, 
think about what you're trying to say and then say it. And I was like, why would I do that? <laughs> like that's like, but um, but seriously, um, actually the way that I've gotten around that is to bake into like my very into the procedural mechanisms of like how I talk. Like I think just to bake in on the back end, like very strong kind of principles about like what I stand for and kind of what I don't, and to do it that way so that I just know that I won't be saying something that's like you know, or, you know, unless I'm misunderstood in some comments, which has happened. And Ben knows about, we can maybe now that I have tenure, this is the story to tell uh, my own story with like almost cancel culture, my first semester uh, teaching, um, teaching property law um, there, but like, it was a very, yeah, I know Mike, now you, I have to I have to tell the story now. I kind yeah. of have to tell the story. I can give it. Cool. Um, yeah. Um, I was teaching property. You, what, Ben? Ben's either muted oh, or... Oh, sorry. Give, give KK like 15 minutes to think about whether she wants to okay. tell the story. Because if we uh, demand it of her, uh, she will tell it. And yeah. <laughs> that may not be uh, what she wants to do. So let's let's reconvene on this subject yeah, at yeah, 545. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think that that's right. Um, uh, there's... It was, it's... It's... Yeah. But suffice it to say that I believe that there is that like here is and like I put into the chat like this, this reshaming the debate um, paper that I wrote when I was like in in graduate school before I was before I was a professor. And I the idea was basically this, that the problems with shame is that it's a normative punishment. It cannot be made proportional. Um, it is also uh, it is often erroneously meted out or um, meted out without end. And that the all of the all of I mean, none of this is very controversial at the time. But this, as I said, this was I was writing this before cancel culture was a term. And that it wasn't just about political correctness. It was about all kinds of things that people were doing over the internet that all of a sudden were getting the light of day. And people were like in their in the real world, like we're just being caught on camera and people were shaming the crap out of them. Like, do you remember like New York City had like a stop the spread campaign of like men who would like who were like like taking huge stances and blocking people from like sitting right. down next to them on the bench type right. of thing. Their, and their like, huge stances weren't arm the Ukrainians. They literally, their knees were very far apart on the subway. Yes. Right. Like there they was like a spread. Yes. But like, I, like if I had got to write this article over again, one of the things that I would say is that like the reason it was happening is that like, it was so costless to have a reaction to shame. It was so unhinged from reputation, your own reputation like you could shame without any reputational damage to yourself if you had fucked up and made the wrong assessment. It felt infinite to the person who was receiving it, felt infinite and enormous. It felt like everyone in the entire world like hated you. I mean, they could, I've talked to so many people who have gone through this now at this point that it's like all of them like, contemplate suicide or like some type of moment of like just deep, deep, like, you know, fear or like this lack of like any point of continuing to live. Um, and I just really think that like, I think that like, so part of me think like, I'm with you that this is like a problem or not a problem. I'm with you that this happens and people feel this way. Um, but I don't know. I don't know that I completely think that it's not answering speech with speech. Because I actually do yeah. think that it's answering speech with speech. It's just not productive speech. I think, uh, I, th I think the case that you're talking about, the cases, the mass shamings, maybe you want to put the 
infamous Justine Sacco on a plane. Um, so you think you've been shamed type examples. I think yes. what I think this this is true. What I'm talking about maybe is a subset of cancel culture. Maybe it's the main subset. I think you're pointing to the tool or the weapon. So the tool or the weapon is shaming. Um, and in my case, the tool or the weapon, which is a form of punishment, the tool or the weapon can be an internet mob pylon. It can be just a few people who have uh, sufficient power when a within a workplace. There are a number of tools. It can be two undergrads talking to the dean to try to get the professor punished. But yeah, that's the distinction I'd make that not all cancel culture is the tool is the massive online pylon with the tool of shaming it's an aspect of canceling it's using the same tool as what i'm talking about which is uh meeting arguments with punishments and as far as the quinta thing of people self-censor all the time it's really interesting i've thought about it a lot yes we also you know decide to cross not cross the street a lot and that would be fine if there's a lot of traffic but if we're so if we're so inside our own heads that we don't leave the block when there's a fire, then there is a huge problem. Yeah, this is this, yeah. this is a critical point. I want to give you an example from uh, somebody who uh, from a some. So this is a little bit. I haven't checked this, but somebody who was in a law school class reported to me. This was a criminal law class that um, at an elite law school. Uh, and reported to me that the professor began the class by asking how many people in the class didn't believe in abolition of police and not a single person raised their hand. And this person said, you know, and of course we all know that that's crazy because some of these people are gonna be assistant United States attorneys in a few years. They obviously don't believe in getting rid of police. Um, and, you know, and, and yet, and he, you know, he said, look, if you had a secret ballot on that, 75% of the people in that class don't believe in abolition of police, but they're actually socially afraid to say so. And that gets into the territory, I think, that Mike is talking about where you're, you know, you're afraid to cross the street when there's no traffic um, or you have sufficient nightmares about traffic that, you know, they affect your 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 willingness to do things yeah and there are but, very like, would anyone have ever like what if you like do you think that in 1960 if you'd asked the room a question about desegregation that like you would have gotten like and you were like how many people here think that school at, no, not i'm trying to think of something like or not these i don't know i'm trying to think of something like analogous that would be a hot button issue and like like 50 years ago, like, wouldn't you have had the same response? There is always going to be some type of self-censor when you're being asked to report. This is like the entire idea of intellectual privacy that like Neil Richards talks about, which is the idea that you have to have room and space and privacy to develop your freedom of expression. Okay, but you also have to have enough public space for negotiation of ideas, right? Like, even in Soviet Russia, you had the private space inside your own head to develop yes. your own ideas. You just couldn't say it. And so it seems to me it's not enough to treat it as a privacy issue. It has to be a, you know, a, to some degree, a comfort level with public speech issue. Now, I, I totally agree with Quinta that there's all kinds of things I believe that I don't say. I call it tact. Uh, oh, do you like my my 
uh, hat today. No, I think your hat is horrible. Um, you know, like that's a terrible hat. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things I believe. No one self-censors about dog shirts. That's my favorite part about them. <laughs> that's the thing about dog shirts is that people don't self-censor about them. By the way, I just want to say to all the TSA and flight attendants who loved corn on the cob shirt and came up to me to say so, there were like five TSA guys and flight attendants on the flight uh, to and from Boston this week who were really into corn on the cob shirt. And yes, I wore it in both directions because I forgot to pack a second dog shirt. Um, so um, I had two experiences of flying back and uh, back and forth to Boston. TSA very in Boston, very pro corn on the cob shirt. Flight <laughs> attendants in both directions, very pro dog shirt. I did not solicit anything. So if you're one of those anti corn on the cob shirt people, <laughs> all right. Um, ben, I want to hear right. Mike's response. Hold on, yeah. I want to hear Mike's response. Hold on. Okay. First of all, Ben, I want to point out that in Soviet Russia, private space not in your head, or your head is in private space. Thank you. Um, secondly. This is this is my smear. I see what you did there. Yeah, this is my smear enough. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of there are a lot of really good studies on the degree to which people self censor, and there was also a really interesting. It was a research project by a woman named Elizabeth Niehaus of the University of Nebraska, and she did a big survey that showed what many surveys do that pe people students self censor. Uh, they did gradations, as all the good surveys do. We find that 13% of students always self-censor and seven per, or maybe 7% always and 13% frequently. And it's a little higher for conservatives and it's a little lower for liberals. And they also fire has done studies based on the uh, sexuality of the self-censorer. And yeah, there's a vast majority of people who say they sometimes or often self-censor, but there's quite a significant number of people, like a quarter consistently, conservative survey, who says who say that they always or frequently self-censor. Uh, self and the difference is, is, and what Niehaus found is there's all sorts of reasons. One is people just want to be nice, right? People don't want to offend other people. That's what she found in her interviews. Another is an interesting thing that I sometimes see. I started seeing it in Twitter feeds of some of these, um, some of these moral panic arguers who says, they say, who says that college is the place for debate? And there are people, Niehaus talked to these people who said, it's not what I use college for. You know, I want to know what the width of a door frame should be, you know, some architecture student. So there are a whole bunch of people who frequently say nothing because I don't see any value of that. As a law professor, I'm sure you think that that is somewhat regrettable. But I think the big problem is when you ask people if they self-censored, essentially because they wanted to, like we hear censorship and we feel like there's something holding them back and they don't really, in their soul of souls, they don't want to hold back their opinion. But I think oftentimes you do want to hold back your opinion. You're absolutely fine with holding back your opinion and you don't regret the dynamic that says, I'm going to hold back my opinion. But in the example of the criminal law class where everyone felt they had to say they're ab abolitionists, I know that there was a certain percentage of people who said, I didn't say anything. And that was out of reading the room, prudence, self-preservation. And when people feel self-preservation is the motivation, I think 
there's something bad about that. But I also don't sign letters for this reason, like, or petitions. Like, I just have a policy about this because also the, like, the, so did you see this with this terrible anthropology, oh, supposedly terrible anthropology guy at Harvard and all of the people that just kind of, like blindly signed this letter and or then they like signed at- it based on one set of beliefs of what the accusation was jill lapore and probably other people have been on the show and then when more accusations right. came out they backed off because and, they didn't know the full picture and right. so this is like Although also Randall i don't kennedy did not he stuck to it I will say this, just that basically like, I don't do things like that because the norms shift out from, are obviously happening usually in a scenario that the norms are shifting out from under you so quickly that it's like impossible to be on, to know for sure that you're going to be on the right side of justice, I think, or the right side of the curve or the sweet side of the curve. And I mean, like I have like a a few very small examples, but that's like one of like those types of things are one of why I don't like sign things. I also just think that as like kind of Dwayne said, they're just like very they're kind of dumb. Like they're kind of dumb moments of like, they're very lazy moments of speech, in my opinion. It's just, yeah. I I just also want to say like, there's, there is part of the problem is the collapsing of spaces of trust with general spaces that, you know, there are certain issues I do not talk about with audiences that I can't have a serious conversation. Yes. And, and I, those are audiences that I trust to engage at a particular level. I don't talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict outside of that conflict concept, for example, just because like any sentence, single sentence you say out of context is going to be shoved up your ass and twisted. And so but then there are these senses in which all audiences now are the same in that, you know, I can say something in this setting, which is an audience that I trust and can have a serious conversation with, but then it's sitting there on YouTube forever. And eventually Glenn Greenwald will find it and, you know, treat it like I tweeted it with a baby cannon thing. And I, I, and so there's a, there's a risk factor that, you, I think, have a little bit more acutely today than you did before. I also think being overheard and recorded, accident, like in public spaces, there is a lot less obscurity in public spaces when you think you're private than there ever used to be. I just think that this is like, maybe there always was, but like, listen, you would overhear people like saying something completely non-PC at a dinner table next to you and you would just be like to your person next to you and now you can like record them with like not even like like not even being a creep about it and I always like, record my dinner guests no, just, no, no. you know you, oh, you show up is- at, at the Wittis household you know all are welcome but we may be recording you like Ray Dalio no I'm joking I've <laughs> never done that I um, I really do wonder like I I it's it it's it's uh i'm amazed when i see people acting really 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 poorly to other people in public like especially like wait staff or something like that because i'm like 
man, like, do you not understand that the power differential has changed? This yeah. is not just about you paying the bill and them waiting on you. This is now that you can be like destroyed and lose your fucking job at Merrill Lynch because you threw a smoothie at somebody. And no, they like, gave you a raise at Merrill Lynch for that. No, no, they fired this guy. Do you guys oh, not really? remember this? Yeah, this guy, like, well, he went It's because he but, missed. Um, yeah, and it's probably also very generational. Like the guy doing that is probably in his forties and third or fifties because the yes. youngsters yes. these days have signed up for being in the panopticon and in fact uh voluntarily are the worker bees of said panopticon. Yep. Eric Berg, worker bee of the panopticon. How are you? Good. It's filing week, so uh it does feel like it's a panopticon world. <laughs> Right. Uh, Every transaction you've ever made. Yes. Well, it's the filing week for people running for office. So. Oh, it's so every transaction they've ever made. Yes, exactly. What's on your mind? So I guess my question is, this, as a little bit of background, this is coming from someone who is currently having problems even getting people to run for office because of like the harassment of public officials and everything. You know, so how do you see the difference between cult, cancel culture and then say like armed intimidation, those who are using harassment and intimidation that's that's more the style of the right um, of, you know, walking into um, meetings with arms and and uh, going to people's houses and intimidation? Because I kind of see it as like two sides of a similar thing that's going on, but one is a lot more dangerous, not to say that the other one isn't an issue, if that makes yes, sense. Yes, that's right. The same exact activities, one is armed, one is other armed, I'll tell you, unarmed, I'll tell you which one I'm gonna be more concerned about. So whether you, whether you think that it is two sides of the same coin, to me, it's so much more serious that maybe it even uh, transcends the category of cancel culture. And sometimes I feel as someone who thinks that this is a problem, a somewhat serious problem, but not the biggest problem in the world, though it does irk me when people totally deny there is a problem. You know, I analogize it to there are plenty of people who know that global warming is a bigger problem than what they have dedicated their lives to, like contracts that don't let you that won't let you out of them when you, you want to get out of your cable contract or your gym contract. Like that's a real problem. There are definitely I'm very glad that there are people who try to fight against that problem. But compared to the Rohingya and the we and the Uyghurs, I don't think it, you know, has is any comparison. And I look at I look at the <clears throat> I look at the armed intimidation and I look at the physical the, the physical threats and the physical menace as being in such a bigger category that sometimes I think it's better not to even think of it as some version of uh, cancel culture. All right, Mr. Wattenbarger, the floor is yours. Hello. Um, so uh, where do you draw the line between, or if you can draw the line, uh, between tact and self-censorship? Okay, well, I think that if the if the phrase or the consideration tact enters your mind at all, then you're engaging in tact, right? I think that <laughs> I think that no one who has said I wish I could say that um, about a subject, you know, some subject in the news, some policy position, 
It's very hard. I mean, obviously, there are some policy positions that you could frame as a policy position that would be that are so outrageous and beyond the pale. Um, if you are a segregationist and you want to go back to segregated lunch counters, then it might be tact, both tactful and prudent and many other words not to say that. But in general, I think when we're talking about policy positions, where you think the government should be going, what your take is on an historical event, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Emma Camp's example that a lot of people argued over if she really experienced cancellation by feeling that she didn't want to participate in class after talking about was it was it um, Indian ritualistic suicide? You know, to me, that is not in the realm of tact. It would be interesting. Can, I mean, give me I, give me I, a can give I, me I some offer a simpler yeah. answer to that? Um, tact is is. Uh, a, a point devoid of substance. If the idea has substance, you are out of the realm of tact. You are in the realm of, uh, uh, you know, tact is, do you like my shirt? Um, well, actually, I think your shirt is a crime against humanity, but uh, I'm on your show, you know, maybe I should say, oh yeah, I love dog shirts. Um, uh, if you're talking about an issue. Yeah, tact is going high when you could go low. Right. I mean, the, the answer is that's not about tact. That's about are you willing to risk being accused of harboring an abhorrent idea like like tolerating, uh, uh, you know, ritual murder um, uh, because you don't want to impose your uh, imperialistic values on on another culture. I, now that there may be reasons to shut your mouth in that situation, but it's not tact. Yeah, I want to. I want to also just kind of put something out there that I've been researching a lot that I think that you might like, Mike. That also kind of gets at this. I think Mike is frozen. Yeah, I think he is too. He I'm going very... to do that too. I know. Well, I'll just kind of like, <laughs> um, but like this is um, this is kind of a John. I've just like gone back to basics with kind of this marketplace of ideas thing in like all of the research that I've been doing around kind of the ideal size of a platform and breaking them up into what size and when will we be serving this? When do we want competition? When do we not? And I think that we do want competition to have different types of governance structures and platforms, but I don't think that necessarily is getting at like what the problem that people think that they're having with speech, um, like this problem of like too much harassment or too much cancel culture. I think that's actually the opposite um, answer. But I just will say really quickly that there is something very interesting about this marketplace of ideas and the conceit of like the idea that when Justice Holmes said this, he was talking mostly about kind of an actual marketplace in which you like would pay more or less for ideas and that they are like actual commodities, which is like literally how people use it now. And much more that he was coming up in an age that was parallel with Darwin and like the birth of kind of a scientific, yes. a scientific revolution. And that this is like the evil, this is the, 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 the argument towards scientific method and, and Adam Smith in his like invisible hand theory is tilting at that. He's not just talking about market competition and that when he says this, he didn't say marketplace of ideas even. So that's like another thing. Um, but like this idea 
it's like a, just a really important kind of, um, I think that it has, it has created this environment that like free speech has to be completely unregulated. Like you would imagine re like not regulating a free speech environment. It would actually be much better to have bright line rules in some capacity around the types of appropriate speech to relieve people of like having to decide what was tactful and what was not, yeah. or what was normative or what was not. And like, that makes a better, more free speech environment and more speech and like more productive conversation. So anyway. Look, anybody who wants an environment in which they don't get any negative feedback for speech does not know what speech is and doesn't understand, you know, the metaphor of the marketplace of ideas is not simply that, well, oh, maybe this orange is, is nasty and rotten. I won't buy it. It's also, hey, motherfucker, why are you trying to sell these fucking rotten oranges in your stall, right? Um, and Because the, every every piece of speech is contextual. Like we cannot possibly understand anything in a vacuum and like just like price is contextual in some ways, but like it's all just kind of about valuation. And so like the idea of isolating it down to something so fundamental, yeah, totally right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just no, but, uh, but I, I, I guess the point is when it goes beyond negative feedback and asks for punishment, asks you to lose your job, asks you to... Um, that's a that's a little bit more and again you know if the fruit stand consistently sends sells rotten uh you know you might talk to the organizer of the market and say hey this guy's not okay and so i'm not always opposed to it but i do i do think there's a uh i do think you have to think about it all the time yes. mr bots we are still working on getting mike pesca back uh you know, in his new role as speech therapist, he's got, um, uh, you know, he's got a lot going on. He's trying to learn how to speak again. Um, <laughs> so the floor is yours in the meantime. Well, thank you. I was going to try doing this for a while, but um, uh, Mike is not here to defend himself. Uh, but I, I do have a question for each of you, and then, and then maybe I can sneak in a second question. But for each of you, and I would like to start with you, Professor Klonick. That's yes. associate professor with tenure Klonick to you. <laughs> yes. Um, do you feel less uh, nervous about possibly being canceled today no. versus say this week or last week? I don't know what we mean by canceled still. So I want to be clear about this. Do I feel, I, I want to like, I know Mike, I know, but like, okay, let me say exactly what I would be. I am afraid of as a human being. I am still afraid of being shamed, like gang shamed on the internet, like internet shamed. Like, I think that that I'm still afraid. I'm always afraid of that. I think that like, I will be always afraid of that till the day I die, as long as the internet exists in this capacity. Um, I'm less concerned about being fired, but I don't know that it would be a, like, there are, there are, th it's not like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I, I don't adhere, I guess it's nice <laughs> it's that I figured out what she wants to be when she grows up. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say that. So like, I don't know what, I mean, I'm, I've known, known for a long time. I didn't want to run for political office to Eric Berg's point, but like, um, I don't know. Like, I just kind of think that, like, that, that, like, I don't want to lose those opportunities that would be caught, that would be downstream from Jamie. So, I, the answer, short answer to your question is like, I'm not afraid of being fired. And so that's kind of nice. But this is kind of why I think that this is actually like, 
I was never really afraid of being fired in the first place. So that was not like, I don't know. But, How about yeah. you, Mike Pesca, having now been canceled once and having burst yeah, forth in, in the fires of the, uh, the Phoenix uh, uh, again, are you still afraid? Are you afraid of, of, of being punished for speech a second time? Yes. And I, um, I was less concerned about it than I should have been in uh, my earlier settings, as history would prove. And so the way it's affected me is just to realize that uh, I'm not special. I'm part of this trend that certainly exists. And, you know, there can be costs. The weird thing is I would defend everything that I've ever said or every thought I've ever expressed. And I'm I not going to- I don't know that to... I would have done anything that you did differently. <laughs> like, I just yeah, want to say I'm not that. going to express, I'm not going to express any thoughts that I couldn't defend, but, you know, the first time that wasn't, that wasn't that huge an issue. I'm just more cognizant. Like I remember before Ben, when you said on this show, there's um, <clears throat> on this show, there's uh, a sort of tone and a sort of uh, topics that you would engage in. I feel the same way about this show. I feel the same way about some other shows I've been on. I would comport myself differently. And it is something like a fear of cancellation in different fora than I would before. Yeah. And Mr. Wittes, what are your feelings about being canceled or not canceled? So it's an interesting, there is a group of people that tries to cancel me on a regular basis. Really? Most recently, um, the uh, last week uh, over my uh, anodyne tweet that I thought the Russian people uh, should not have Vladimir Putin as their president. And uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald and uh, oh, Tybee okay. and, now I know and you're talking about. <laughs> Ron Dreher. It was the far right and the far left, you know, all pretended that this was a the call horseshoe. for a military invasion of Russia. And it, you know, took three or four days for it to go away. Um, and look, I, in order to be canceled, you have to have something that can be taken away from you that can that somebody can demand so in mike's case mike had a show that was owned by slate and so the demands the the feelings of slate staffers who didn't like mike uh actually had real consequences i don't have anything like that I mean, I suppose Brookings could fire me. Um, uh, that would be the analogy. I don't spend time living in fear of that at all, actually. Brookings is very good about protecting its people. Uh, and, um, uh, and by the way, if Brookings ever did fire me, the Lawfare Institute would hire, which I, you know, am the president of, would hire me. So it's like... I, I'm actually in a in a pretty a relatively invulnerable position, except in the sense that Kate means, which is like, okay, if I did something really egregious and would I be humiliated and embarrassed by people's sense of, of shame at me and, and anger at me? And the question then, of course, would become, well, what did I do? And 
you know, if I think I, if I thought I had really erred, then yeah, that would be humiliating. And I would, um, and if I thought I hadn't, which is what happened last week, I would, you know, write a, uh, I hope dignified account of what I did and didn't say. And, uh, you know, life goes on when Glenn Greenwald gets bored, um, uh, which is, you know, a lot of my life is life goes on when Glenn Greenwald gets bored. Mr. Alaric Hogg, you get the last question today. <laughs> Greetings. Uh, Greetings. So I've, um, I had uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide, the random thought to prefix my question. I had the Hitchhiker's Guide on my mind earlier this week, and, and I'm reminded now of the Babel fish that translated every inner thought, you know, to the wider public, and that that's sort of kind of what we're going through, even though it's maybe not our innermost thoughts. Uh, and so in that respect, cancel culture maybe has deep roots, but it's a phenomenon. And is it going to burn itself out? You know, is it, are we stuck with this sort of, uh, you know, behavior check ad infinitum, or is it going to morph or burn out? So, I love uh, this question. I Go think for it. I, I think it will correct to a large degree, and I think generationally is the reason why. I just sense that my son and kids a little older than him, they maybe not have the acute sense of cancel culture as we do, but they're sick of it. You know, they don't want to. They are all the all the young YouTubers know that it can happen, and some of them have been canceled, quote unquote, for some pretty bad things. So maybe they weren't canceled. Maybe that was consequence culture. But it just comes down to, is this really the world we want to live in? And I just don't think it is. I don't think that the constant shaming and the constant trolling for shaming and the constant trying to get attention by finding an outrage where it never was, I don't think that that is a world that people opt for. On the other hand, I do think a major reason why there's been this increase in cancel culture is also the increase in what Jonathan Haidt talks about, which is therapizing and thinking about uh, our own emphasizing vulnerabilities. And there's a great, there's much to be said about that. And we probably went from insensitive to sensitive. It was a necessary step, but maybe excessive. But that dynamic where we always think about vulnerabilities and vulnerable communities and the idea of harm, that would argue for there'll be a lot more of it. I just, if, if, the, if someone says, here's what I hope, in 15 years, if someone says words are violence and it doesn't mostly get a laugh like an old hippie ideal being expressed, you know, 15, 20 years later, there is no property or something. If that doesn't get a laugh, then I'd be surprised and disappointed. Words are violence, Mike, and you just did violence to uh, lots of letters that wanted to be arranged in different formats. You forced them bodily into the form that uh, uh, you wanted them to be, and that mm -hmm. violated their bodily autonomy. There were a uh, lot of V's and A's and just sharp letters involved. It was that's very right. And they wanted to yeah. be round letters. And that's right. You know, can I we, can I just say really quickly that I did a talk uh, today um, this morning 
and I was asked what I thought the future of, of governance at the platforms was going to be for the new metaverse. Like, do you think that we'll have the same issues of governance? And I was like, no, it's like there's a giant pit, like trap door and like all of the law, which is free speech, which no one has ever known how to govern or how to make these decisions and how to like trade off these ideals. And like the entire fucking internet is that problem and fell into it. And like, actually the metaverse comparatively, I think will be very easy to govern because it kind of maps onto not speech, but like actual property issues and like actual kind of tort issues. And there are like, there's jurisdictional problems and all these other things. But I actually think once, if we had like a space, if it was more space driven, like there would be like, like plate, like concrete. Anyway, that's my thought. I just want to say one thing about the metaverse, which is uh, this, uh, we should all resist calling it the metaverse because this is a way of Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, That's true. That uh, is true. Attaching, <laughs> uh, creating the impression that his company is the universe. Right. By taking this, the Zuckerverse. The, this phrase <laughs> that we all use, the metaverse, multiverse whatever and just lopping off that and then naming the company after it it's pernicious it's like venti and you know starbucks trying to get you to change large to big to venti and small to tall don't play for with it don't just i've call never it done that Facebook. oh i don't I call, do that i, I say call medium it, i would give me a goddamn <laughs> medium drip coffee um you know, and they, they, they've stopped correcting me about this. Right. For years, they used to correct me. I'm with you. I won't even call it Facebook. I call it MySpace. Screw them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Friendster. We're going to leave it there. Mike Pesca, you're a great American. Uncancelable. Not even bent, let alone bowed. You, you can't get canceled if you have friends. I'm pretty sure Frank Capra said that, and it's a wonderful life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to be back on Monday, and we're going to have Alex Finley here. And if you are not following Alex Finley on Twitter, former CIA uh, uh Are you going to be on the show on Monday? I am. I'm coming for Alex, because she has been camped out in Barcelona, which when which we used to call the undisclosed location when she would come on the show and didn't want people to know where she was, tracking yachts with hashtag yacht watch on, uh, uh, on Twitter. How it many is, are there? There are a whole bunch of yachts and she's named them all and she's trying to connect them to oligarchs. It is the funniest freaking thing on I Twitter. I think I just figured out what to do with Russia's nuclear weapons. Just now, it just came to me. <laughs> you want to tell us? No, I just oh. it's the yachts. All right, oh, I see. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna be back. We're gonna talk with uh, with with Alex Finley. If you don't follow Alex Finley and Yacht Watch on Twitter, you're doing the whole Twitter thing wrong. That'll be a bunch of hours and fifty-five minutes from now. And until then, Mike Pesca. Can't have funny anymore, but in lieu of fun, we can have references to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that sadly don't include that frog There you go. See you Monday, guys. Excellent reference.